Revelation chapter 22. So it's our 34th and final lesson. You know, this took a little bit longer than I anticipated, but it's not as long as some series that I've done. I was looking back today. So Ephesians, it took like 18 months to finish that. This one is going to finish, if we finish tonight, it'll be 11 months, basically right on the dot, because I started in August of last year, and we're finishing at the end of June. So pretty awesome. All right. What? It doesn't seem that long. Yeah, I know. It's just just flown. Revelation chapter 22. We're going to start in verse number 6, and we're going to go all the way to the end. Um, but I, I want to kind of start off with some introductory things before we kind of dive into this tonight. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his... How many ever read The Chronicles of Narnia, that series? Great series. Um, in his last book, what was the last book? Anybody? Kind of a trivia question tonight. The End? The Hubbard, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Is that what you said? The Cupboard? Any, anybody know what the last book in the series was? It's a trivia question. You've slept since then. Princess? David. The Last Battle. There you go. I mean, you guys can use Google or your phone or Siri or something. Part of it I was asking because I don't even have it in my notes. All I have is in his last paragraph in the last book, I forgot to write down what the last book was. But anyway, thank you. The final battle. In the last paragraph in the last book of the Narnia series, he wrote this. He said, The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can mostly or most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And, and I said that because really that's kind of, as we come to the end of Revelation, it's the end of Revelation, it's the end of the Bible, but it's really just the beginning of eternity. Once we get to that place, it's only chapter one of the rest of our lives. How many have ever read a book and the beginning was far better than the end? Anybody ever read a book like that? Or you watched a movie where the beginning was far better than the end. You got to the end, you're like, man, this is horrible. This is stupid. Um, you know, I've read books like that. I, I've, I've watched TV shows or movies like that. But really, you know, our life on this earth and really the Bible uh, the end and the, the beginning after the end is so much better than we can even imagine, as, as C.S. Lewis was even pointing out. And in Revelation 22, what we're talking about tonight, we see that God is taking delight in offering one final invitation to mankind. Because throughout scriptures, he has offered invitation after invitation to, to come to him, to seek him. Uh, some specific passages in the Psalm, Psalm 34, 3, the Bible says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt or lift up his name together. That's an invitation from God. Psalm 95, verse 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing joyfully to the Lord. Let us, let us shout. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Another invitation, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Hey, let's discuss this, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Uh, Matthew 4, 19, he tells his disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he says, come unto me, all you are, who are weary and, and burdened, I will give you rest. And, and there's so much more in that passage. In Revelation 3, verse 20, 
at the very beginning of this series, we read where he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And then here in Revelation chapter 22, in the closing verses, verse number 17, we see this final invitation. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth come, and let him that is thirsty come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So even at the end, God still sends out one final invitation. Because even though Revelation is written to Christians, it's written to Christians to give them hope, to encourage them, but also to help us to live on mission, to do what God has called us to do, to encourage the lost, that there is hope. There might not be hope in this present world, but there is hope in what is to come. And what we, what we see in, in, in this final passage is there's really two themes. This, it's the reliability and the authenticity of this book and the imminence of the end, the imminence of Christ's return. And what we see in this final 15, 16 verses are really seven invitations. And that's what I want to walk through with you all tonight. And the first invitation is this. We have it on the screen if you can see it. If not, uh, just pay attention if you're writing notes. First invitation is this. Obey the word of God. Obey the word of God. Look at verse number six of chapter 22. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. Talking about what John has written, and really going even deeper and further, what is in the Bible. These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly be done. Verse number seven, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this prophecy of this book. Uh, Duvall notes in his commentary, he says, it has important parallels with this prologue in Revelation 1, verses 1 through 8, and the three central themes that reinforce the overall message of the book. That first of all, the book is an authentic prophecy from God. Second, that Jesus' return is imminent, which means it's coming soon. And then third, those who obey the prophecy will be blessed. So it's very important that we don't just let God's word, especially this series, go in one ear and out the other. It's very important that we listen, that we are attentive, that we hear, but then we also do what it tells us to do. So as we listen, as we hear, as we obey this prophecy, there are blessings that come into our life. And I'm not talking about this prosperity type gospel that some preach, that if you do certain things, you know, God's going to give you everything you can imagine. Well, everything we can imagine is in the next life to come. But if we obey God's word, we will be blessed. And that's the most important invitation that God gives us at the start here. We must trust that God's word is what it is. God's word. It's final. It's full. It's complete. Revelation is true, not because John is writing this down. Revelation is true because it comes from who? Jesus Christ himself. Jesus never goes back on his word. So therefore, we can trust that his word is truth. How many have ever gone back on your word? Anybody here? Yes. I think all of us have. We've said something, especially parents. You say something to your kids, and they remember, don't they? Yeah, kids, you remember what your parents say. Ours do all the time, and, and we love it. Like, Mom, Dad, you said, well, yeah, I know I said that, but that's not what I meant. You know, we go back on our word all the time, but Jesus never does, and we have to understand that. And that's his first invitation, to obey the word of God, to keep the saying that God has given us. You know, we have to let the word of God daily live in our life. Noah, sit down, please. Thanks, bud. We have to let Scripture guide us and shape us, and, and we have to obey it. We have to let its power in and through our lives. Dennis Johnson says, he says, Scripture is not a passive cadaver. 
waiting for curious medical students to dissect in their quest for information. It is a living double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the triumphant Son of Man and pierces the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It is a, a hammer that shatters a seed that grows and uh, that grows um, rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the mission of which it was sent. Scripture has done or has a job to do in us and through us. So the first invitation is obey the word of God. Second invitation as we continue to move on is this, be true to the worship of God. So not only must we obey God's word, but we must be true to it and be true to worshiping God. Look at verse number eight. And I, John, saw these things. Again, imagine, just if you will, now we're not going back to everything that we've talked about. That would be a long time. But imagine everything that John has seen, that he has witnessed. Countless times he has, what, fallen down on his face in worship and awe and reverence because he was so overwhelmed. And really, who here tonight wouldn't be overwhelmed? All of us would have been overwhelmed if, if we were in John's situation. But look at verse number 8. And I, John, saw these things, and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel. Now, hopefully we know that this is wrong, and you know John is going to be <laughs> made right here in just a minute. But worship is never directed at an individual. Worship is never directed at an angel. And the Bible even specifically talks about that, that other passages. Worship is only directed or only should be directed to who? To God or to his son, Jesus Christ. So as John sees these things, and, and he's just misguided in what he is doing because he is in awe of everything that he has seen, everything that he has witnessed, and he falls down at, at the feet of this angel that is showing him these things. Verse number nine, then saith he unto me, hey, whoa, whoa, see thou do it not. Basically, hey, don't fall down and worship me. I'm, I'm nothing greater than you. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book, worship who? God. And that's important for us today as well. You know, it's the most natural thing, but yet again, we see this proper perspective of worship. Worship is only ever to be directed to God and to his son. And worship, any worship other than worshiping God is idolatry. John MacArthur says that God alone is the only acceptable person to worship. The Bible forbids the worship of anyone or anything else. Go to Colossians 2.18. Don't go there tonight, but if you write that down, it even talks about the worship of angels because angelic beings are just creations themselves. They are not the creator. They are something that has been created, so even they are not to be worshiped. Now, here's just a quick side note. It's not really in the passage tonight, but just want to kind of throw this out there. You know, I talked about be true to the worship of God. We must be true in worshiping God and God alone. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of churches and really there are a lot of pastors out there that I have a problem with them that it's not because of what they preach. It's really I feel like their churches are more about man-centered worship than they are about God-centered worship. And what I mean by this is that there are a lot of individuals, and I don't want to name names. You would know some. You wouldn't know some. <laughs> These guys would know a lot of them. But there's a lot of churches and men out there that really want their congregation to worship them, to bow down to them. And that's wrong. Honestly, I, I, am, I am nothing greater than anyone in, in this outdoor audience tonight. Just because I'm the pastor, really, yeah, yeah God has chosen me for this position, but 
I'm, I'm not above anyone. That's the point I'm trying to make. And no pastor is above anyone. And all of us have even seen that, even in our own community and around the country, that it's very easy for a pastor to fall just as it is easy for any of us to fall. Is it not? And we have to understand and realize that it's not about putting them so far on a pedestal because a lot of times they're going to fail us. You know, there are institutions and churches that place their pastor and leaders on a pedestal, and really it's as if that's what the pastor wants them to do. You know, I, I, I know it's true that you should reverence God's man, but there are times where it gets out of control. And we have to realize that, and, I, and I've said this many times, but the church is not about me. It's about God. I'm just the one that he has chosen to help equip and help lead. And, and you know, as I've said many times, you know, I'm just the one that you guys pay to me to preach to you. And I'm thankful for that. But the point I'm trying to make is that worship is only ever directed to God. And the angel is saying the same thing. Hey, I'm just your fellow servant. I'm not much different than you. I'm just a creation. Who we need to worship is our creator. Invitation number three. Not only must we be true to the worship of God, but this, this is important. Proclaim the truth of God. Look at verse number 10. And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of this prophecy. Now, there have been times throughout the book of Revelation where John was told to, hey, don't write this down. So there are things that we don't even know that are going to happen, that are going to take place. There are other times where an angel or God or Jesus himself say, hey, I want you to write this thing down. But here in verse number 10, he says, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now, quickly, the prophet Daniel was told to keep the words a secret and seal up the book until the end of times in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But John is now told not to seal it up, but rather to proclaim it. You know, does anyone know why the command is different from Daniel to John? Anybody know why John was told not to seal it up where Daniel was told to seal it up? Anybody have an idea? Venetia, you're just swatting bugs. It's like, no, don't call on me. Don't call on me. Here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because when John was writing this, Christ's return was imminent, which means it was going to happen very soon, and it's still going to happen very soon. So the point was, don't seal it up because the world needs to know this. You need to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And really what this means for us today is that we can understand the book of Revelation. You know, I'm sure many of us, as we started this series, and maybe some of us have gone through series in Revelation before, and I have, and there have been times where I was scared out of my mind of what Revelation was about. But the more I've studied it, it doesn't scare me. It just gives me hope. And it helps me understand that, yeah, there are things that I don't understand that I'll probably never understand this side of heaven, but I understand the important things, and I understand that as a believer, I have a responsibility to do, that it's everything is pointing back to Jesus, and it points back to the mission that he has given me. You know, Revelation twenty two eleven, it contains four commands that serve as warnings and encouragement. It affirms that a day is coming when change will no longer be possible. This is true, whatever the word is, eschatological. I can't say the word. Anyway, whatever that word is. Michael, what is it? Yeah, 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 that word. 
I could spell it out for you. I just can't, can't get it out. I can't spit it out. How do we respond to the truth of God's word in this life? How we respond to it will confirm our character and determine our destiny for all eternity. Now listen, negatively, the unrighteous will still do evil. Those that rebelled against God, those that chose to serve themselves and serve the beast, their character will not change. Those that are evil will continue to be evil. Those that are filthy will continue to be filthy. But on a positive note, the righteous will still do right. The holy will still be holy. And the, the, this verse in verse 11 is, is telling us that one's character will be set forever, fixed in a final condition and a uh, disposition. Those in hell will have no part and passion for God. Their, their character won't change just because they're in hell. It's like, oh, I, I've changed. I, I want to serve God. No, they'll, they'll still be evil. Those in heaven will delight in their emulation of their Lord. These truths must be told, and that's what John is told to, to write it down, to proclaim it. We shouldn't be silent because souls are at stake. Eternal destinies hang in the balance. Invitation number four, verses 12 through 15, is this. We must then pursue the will of God. Pursue the will of God. Verse number 12, and behold, I come quickly. This is Jesus. I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha Omega, which means the beginning, the end, the first, the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments and they uh, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates in the city as we talked about last lesson. For without our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. Now this fourth invitation, pursue the will of God, is important. Once again, Jesus is challenging the reader and affirming his imminent return. Isaiah 40 verse 10 talks about that he, he said he will repay each person according to what he has done on this earth. Behold, I, I come quickly. That's what he says in verse number 12. You know, look, there's no time to waste. There's no more time to delay. Jesus then tells us that he is the first, he is the last, he is the beginning, the end. There is no one before him, no one after him. So do what God has commanded us to do so we can enjoy the place that he has prepared for us. Verse number 14, we're given the seventh and final blessing of Revelation. And it's the blessing for the one that loves and obeys God. Verse 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. These closing verses of the Bible make it perfectly clear that salvation is a matter of the will. In a sense, it's whosoever wishes may come. Now, if you, uh, the invitation is for everyone, but you still have to receive the invitation. And if you reject the invitation, then you will go, as we've talked about before, to a place that wasn't prepared for you, was prepared for the devil and his angels. But God's invitation is clear that salvation is for any, for all. Now, John describes this, this state as being blessed or, or happy. Look, we crave for blessings. We crave for happiness. But the only way to eternal happiness is to receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, which then entitles us entrance into the holy city and access to the tree of life. Verse 15 stands in striking contrast to verse 14. Those who de whose destiny is in the lake of fire are described as those that are outside the city. Look what it says, for without are dogs. And he's referencing these individuals. 
our dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. So John, again, is talking about those who will not be in heaven. The dogs are, it's a metaphor talking about impure and malicious people. Uh, those that have low character. You know, the first time blatantly impure sinners were called dogs in the Bible was in Deuteronomy chapter 23. And this is where it was talking about the male homosexual prostitutes. They were in view here. Sorcerers, it's those who practice the occult or witchcraft. Whoremongers, those who are practicing all kinds of sexual immorality. And really, a Christian should not act that way. Murderers means those that are premeditating murder. You know, this has nothing to do with accidental killing or killing in war. You know, the ones that are premeditating those, and these, this is included in that list in Revelation 21, verse 8. Idolaters. These are anyone or any individual who puts something before God. Anything that you worship other than the true God is considered an idolater. All liars. Now, everyone has lied, but this is really referring to those that have not accepted the truth of the gospel those that have not asked Jesus to come into their heart to be their Savior. You know, to love and practice falsehood is to be completely and totally devoid of truthfulness. So what John is saying here is that it's not that Christians can't act wrong at times. They can and they do. But there are those individuals, and he's referencing types of personalities, that have rejected Jesus, rejected the truth, and they are outside the city forever burning in a lake of fire, as we've already uh, referenced in other passages. Only those that have trusted Jesus as their Savior will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom, blessings of this great city. The fifth invitation, as we continue to move quickly tonight, is this. We must then respond to the invitation of God. Look at verse number 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So I'm sending my angel, to testify these things to you, that I am the root of the offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst or thirsty come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know, Jesus is really, he's putting his seal of approval on this book about the final events of history. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He is that bright and morning star. He is the root or the source and the offspring or the descendant of David, which means he is before David as God and comes from David as man. Verse 17 contains another great invitation of revelation in the Bible. It's foretold. The Holy Spirit says, come. The bride, which is the church of Jesus, says, come. The one who hears is told to extend the invitation to come. And the one who is thirsty is invited to come. Really, what this is saying is that all who desire eternal living water are invited to come and to be saved. So this fifth warning or this fifth invitation is this, to respond to the invitation of God, to respond to what God is calling us to do. If you're here and you're not saved, that's the invitation to come, to drink of the water so that one day when this present life is over, you can receive the blessings that are to come. The sixth invitation, verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of prophecy in this book, if any man shall add unto these things. You know, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that are very misconstrued, uh, taken out of context, uh, misinterpreted. This is one of those passages. 
heavily misinterpreted by many individuals. God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The sixth invitation is this. Heed the warning of God. Heed the warning of God. Now, quickly, this is not talking about those that have written commentaries on the Bible. It's not even talking about translations of the Bible. You know, there are some in some camps that if you don't have a certain translation, then everyone else is going to hell. That is so wrong. That is a wrong theology and a wrong thinking. And that's not what John is referencing here. Because if we want to get, you know, really biblical, the New Testament was written in Aramaic Greek. None of us read Aramaic Greek, do we? All we're reading is a translation of the original. Same thing is true in the Old Testament. It was written in Hebrew. We were reading a translation in our common tongue of the original. So the warning here is not about a translation, those that write another translation, as as many have done. It's about those who are tampering with the Bible, who are using it uh, to, to, to bring about false theology in individuals' life. Look, no one fully understands all of the Bible, and that's true. No one can explain everything in it. And sometimes those of us like myself that, that teach it, uh, we teach the word. We, sometimes, you know, my interpretation on things have changed as I've grown in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of the scriptures. Look, I've been there. And God sees the heart. He sees and he can separate the ignorance from the impudence, the immaturity from rebellion. You know, it was very customary in ancient days for the writers to put a kind of warning at the close of their books because the people who copy them for public distribution might be tempted to tamper with the material to write their own things in it. Now, John's warning was not necessarily addressed to the writer, but to the hearer, the believer in the congregation where this book was read aloud. So by analogy, it would imply that anyone reading and studying this book today, God's Word. Now, we may be able to explain the penalties given, But we do know this. It's a dangerous thing to tamper with the Word of God. The one who guards the Word of God and obeys it will be blessed. The one who alters it will be disciplined in the same way. John MacArthur says, No true believer would ever deliberately tamper with Scripture. Those who know and love God will treat His Word with the utmost respect. They will say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law, talks about that in many of the passages in Psalms. Believers will make errors in judgment or mistakenly misinterpret Scripture incorrectly or inadequately. But the Lord's warning here is addressed to those who engage deliberately in falsification and misinterpretation of Scripture, those who Paul denounced as peddlers of the Word of God. And there are individuals today that are trying to use God's Word for their own gain, And that's really what it's referencing, not someone that has written a commentary to help understand it or someone that has accidentally misinterpreted Scripture based on their limited knowledge of things. It's those that have maliciously taken God's Word and perverted it and twisted it into their own way of thinking, their own line. And the warning is clear. Believers will love and receive the Word, while unbelievers will hate and reject the Word. And then the final invitation as we close out, invitation number seven, Pray for the coming of God. Verse number 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. 
Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Revelation, the Bible are at their end. One final time, the the Lord Jesus Christ speaks and his last words are brief, but sure. Our God sends out a promise that I am coming quickly. Surely I come quickly. Again, it's been 2,000 years since he ascended. And it could be another 2,000 years, but the point is true that we don't know how long we have. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. So until he comes back, we need to be busy about what he has called us to do. And from the moment that sin entered into history, God has been on a rescue mission to save sinners. And it shouldn't come as a surprise as the very end of the revelation, as the very at the very end of the Bible, he is still giving an invitation to sinners to come to Jesus and to be saved. And I want to remind you of a very important truth. Revelation is not intended to promote hopeless speculation about the future. It is intended to fuel hopeful obedience in the present. So it's not for us to debate everything that we don't know. It's to give us hopeful obedience in our present condition, knowing that, yes, Jesus is going to be victorious. If we are on his side, we are with him. We are victorious as well. Again, as I said earlier, Scripture is not just that passive cadaver waiting for curious medical students to dissect. It's a living double-edged sword that proceeds from the mouth of the most triumphant son of man and pierces the thoughts and incense of our hearts. It's that hammer that shatters, the seed that grows, the rainfall that never returns to its giver without accomplishing the mission. Scripture has a job to do in us and through us, and that's why it's important that we listen to it, that we obey it, that we heed it. And I want to close at the, the application of really not just this chapter, but the book with three or four truths. I came across this from uh, some study in, in David Platt in his series on Revelation. And what we come to as we look at Revelation as a whole is this. First and foremost, we must see the world in all its deception. The world is against Christ. The world is against Christianity. The world is not there to be our friend. The world is there to deceive us. This book specifically was written to a church under attack from all sides, persecution from the world, seduction by the world. And Christians were looking at the world around them and waning in their commitment to God. And really the same is true today. When John was writing this, the church was under attack. Persecution was there in the world. Uh, There was seduction by the world. The same is true in, in today's society. We are seduced by the world, and there are many individuals in the church today or in churches all across our country and across the world that are being seduced by the world and wanting so heavily to join themselves to the world when Christ has called us to be apart from the world. And the the point of this message is clear, to see the world for, for who it is, that it's a deceiver for all its deception. But then the second point is clear, to see Christ in all his glory. First, see the world for all its deception, but second, see the Christ in all of his glory. Look, Jesus is the theme of this great book. And John shows us pictures of this indescribable Christ back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. In Revelation 22, 16, as we read tonight, he says, I am the root, the offspring, or the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. Now think about that. How can you be the root and the descendant of David? The root from which David comes and the descendant from which David comes. How can you be an ancestor and a descendant at the same time? You see, Jesus is the Christ who made the promise to David and then fulfilled the promise to David in, the coming, uh, in, in his coming as the final high priest. 
chapter 1, he tells us that he was, he was clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Remember, all of these images that we've seen depicting Christ are not necessarily intended to be literal. John's purpose is not to fully satisfy our curiosity about what Jesus is wearing in heaven. These are images that were familiar to John's readers, images that would trigger in their minds and their hearts the words of the prophet, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy, and he is that final high priest. Third thing, we must see the church in all her beauty. If we are saved, then we are the church. It's not just the building, it's the people. The church is the body and the bride of Christ. Don't miss it. Revelation gives us a picture of the bride through the eyes of the groom, the gracious, the merciful, the loving groom who has given his life for his bride. And since he has given his life for us, we must live for him. But then fourth and finally, we must then see our life in proper perspective. We should never look around as the world looks. We should look around as Christ looks. We should see life through the lens of our Father. We need to understand, going back to identity, understand whose we are so that we can know who we are. And when we know who we are and whose we are, we live in accordance to that. And to close it all out, look, Revelation is not meant to be a mystery. There are things that I do not understand about this book. There are things you don't understand, but it's really, it's not a mystery, it's a masterpiece. We don't just have hope in the future, we have hope and a promise in the present because Jesus is king. He doesn't just rule over us as we have learned in this book and other great books as well. We are participants with him. So take hope in that. And I close with those four final applications to see the world, all its deception. See the world for who it is. The world is not your friend. See Christ in all of his glory. See him for who he truly is. And when we see Christ in all of his glory, see the church in all of her beauty, that we are the bride of Christ, that he has given his life for us to live for him, to serve him, to obey him. And then see and put our life in proper perspective, to not think as the world thinks, but to think as Christ thinks and look at things through the lens of our Father, not through the lens of this world.